Good morning. I'm excited to dive into God's word this morning, but let's pray first. Bow your heads with me. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you for your word because it is perfect and it is true. We ask and pray, Lord, your blessing on our time in your word. Very aware this morning of my own weakness and shortcomings, but your word is not weak, it's powerful, and you have no shortcomings. And so we pray and ask God that you would work by your spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, how many of you have ever read any of those uh, choose-your-own-adventure stories? When I was a kid, I read all these choose-your-own-adventure stories. I love those stories. It's one of those things where like, you get to decide what the character does at key moments in, in the story, right? So uh, will you investigate the study or go to the boathouse? Uh, let's investigate the study. You investigate the study and you find a book that doesn't seem quite right. If you pull the book, a secret door appears. Will you go through the secret door? Or go to the boathouse. Yeah, let's go through the secret door. You open the secret door, and you hear a click. Poison darts shoot from the wall, and you die. <laughs> the end. Story's over. Such a bummer. Uh, maybe I should have gone to the boathouse after all. So you flip back, and you make a different choice. Sadly, in real life... We don't get to do that. We don't get to go back and choose differently once we know the outcome. Now, the good news is, is that the chance of being killed by poisonous darts is pretty low. I'm guessing that most of us, though, have some things in our lives where we would go back and we would do things differently if we had the opportunity, whether big or small. I confess, when I was a kid, I would sort of read ahead to find out, like, okay, if, if I go in the secret door, like, what's going to happen? Oh, poison darts? Okay, we're going to the boathouse, right? Like, you, you, you cheat a little bit, right? Now, we can't go back, but in a way, we can look ahead. Not in detail, but God has given us the end of the story. And what's more, he's given us instructions on the best path to walk, like David, we have been shown by God the path of life, and we're left to choose to walk in it. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy. We're covering chapters 27 and 28 today. We saw last week chapters 1, and four, one through 4 were introduction, and Moses now has finished re-explaining all of the covenant stipulations, the law in chapters 5 through 26, and now we turn the corner and we see the covenant sanctions with a strong call to covenant commitment in chapters 27 through 30. Moses is going to lay out the blessings if you obey and curses if you rebel. What's left for Israel then is to decide if they are going to carefully obey the Lord or go after other gods and serve them. What is left is this choice Obedience or disobedience, faith or unbelief, blessing or curse, joy or misery, life or death. Moses brings them to the point of decision, and he urges them to faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God. 
That phrase, that expression is repeated six times through these two chapters. That's the message for us. Faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now, we obey God because he graciously saved us and made us his own. So Moses is going to say in chapter 27, verses 9 and 10, This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God. And we're going to see three exhortations today that motivate us to obey the voice of God. But overall, these two chapters are a warning. They're a warning. In effect, saying to us, think carefully what will happen if you reject the living God and go after false gods. If you choose rebellion rather than faithfulness, then choose to follow the Lord. So first, for joy, obey all God commands in his word. We hear God's voice in his word. We're going to see this in verses 1 through 10. Look at verse 1. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. Now we've just spent the last several months going through chapters 5 through 26. That's a lot of commands. Hey, Moses, there are a lot of commands here. Which ones do we have to keep? All of them. Like, can't we just pick the ones that we like? No. (laughs) God's word is not a buffet. You don't get to pick and choose the bits that you like, that appeal to you. It's not a buffet line. Keep the whole commandment, not just the parts you like. Obey God's word entirely. Then Moses begins to describe this covenant renewal ceremony that they're going to have when they enter into the promised land. And he tells them, When you cross over the Jordan to the land the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster, and you shall write on them all the words of this law. When you cross over over to enter the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord the God of your fathers had promised you. So they're to set up these stones on Mount Ebal, verse 4. And verse 8, if you look there, says, You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Now, what's happening here? In this, the, Moses is describing this covenant renewal ceremony that's going to take place in the land, and this thing is like a, it's like a living picture. It's like, it's like a, um, an acted-out sermon. It's, a, it's, a, it's visualizing the truth. And so the first thing that we see here is the permanence of the law. God's word is everlasting. The law is to be preserved as a continual reminder of their obligations to God. Moses is going to be gone, but the word of God will remain. Man's word is like grass. God's word is like granite. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. When the, when the plaster wears off and the, and the stones erode, Still, the word of God stands. It will be recorded in the book of the law. In a world that's being blown about by every single wind of doctrine, God's word is a rock. Unchanging and steady. It is the objective moral standard for all people in all places at all times in history. The second thing we see is the clarity of the law. God's word is for everyone. It's not just for priests and professors. It's not just for the professionals. Verse 8 says, write all the words very plainly. Why? So that all 
may read and understand and apply it. The, the clarity of Scripture, or the fancy word for this is perspicuity, almost impossible to say, uh, which is ironic for a doctrine that's about clarity. <laughs> but the clarity of Scripture is not to say that every single verse is going to be easy or obvious to everyone. Rather, as Kevin DeYoung says, the clarity of Scripture means that ordinary people using ordinary means can accurately understand enough of what must be believed and known and observed for them to be a faithful Christian. In short, the simplest disciple can understand enough to be saved and to live a life that pleases God. In order to faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, then, we've got to know His Word. Keep the Word before you at all times. Read it, study it, meditate on it. Let's not have any dusty Bibles in our houses. Rather, let's have Bibles that are all marked up and they've got tattered pages. Spurgeon said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. We're called to keep the whole of God's Word with the whole of our being. God's Word is permanent, accessible, clear. Every word is God's and all of it is to be obeyed. And again, our obedience is grounded in the fact that we belong to God. Verses 9 and 10, they're redeemed by grace and obedience is their response. And joy is the result. Remember I said, for joy obey all God commands in His Word. You see, as a part of this ceremony, when they set up God's word, they were also supposed to build an altar of uncut stones and offer burnt offerings and peace offerings, verses 5 and 6, and you shall eat and rejoice before the Lord your God, verse 7. Why? Why this feast with rejoicing? They're celebrating the covenant. They rejoice because they're in God's presence as God's people, in God's place, under God's perfect rule. Being in God's kingdom, under the king's perfect law, leads to our joy. Joy is the result of belonging to God and walking in fellowship with Him through faithful obedience. Joy is the result of belonging to God and walking with God in fellowship through faithful obedience. So we have this feast each week in God's presence, celebrating the new covenant because the final sacrifice that brings forgiveness and peace with God has been made. Communion is our feast of worship and rejoicing because we have become God's people in God's presence under God's perfect rule. So for your joy, obey God's word entirely. This leads us to point two. Give your amen. Choose to love and serve the Lord. And we have to choose to obey. We're going to see this in verses 11 through 26. Moses, I said, brings the people to a point of decision. What will you choose, blessing or curse? And Moses continued, continues now describing this uh, covenant renewal ceremony that they're going to have. And it's this living picture of the choice that is before them. Half of the tribes are going to stand in front of uh, Mount Gerizim to bless the people, and the other half in front of Mount Ebal for the curse. We already saw this once in chapter 11. And these two mountains are in the smack center of the promised land, both east, west, and north, south. 
but they also have a sacred history. This is where, in the valley between them, stood the oaks of Morah near Shechem. This is where God first promised Abraham, to your offspring, I will give this land. It's where Abraham first built an altar to the Lord, Genesis 12, 6 through 7. This is where Jacob, after returning to the promised land, builds an altar. This is where Joseph is buried. This is the perfect place for them to renew their commitment to faithfully follow the Lord their God. Now, like I said, this is the second time that Moses has talked about this and called for a decision. The first time was in chapter 11, right after he gives all the general commands in chapters 5 through 11, he talks about this, calls for a decision. Now, this is the second time after giving the specific commands in in chapters 12 through 26, right? And he's calling for a decision. There's, There's only two ways The way of faith and obedience leading to blessing and the way of unbelief and disobedience leading to cursing. Neutrality is not an option. You've got to choose. So to help us get a sense of this, again, I want to do what we did in October. I want to divide the room in half. So if you would, if you're able, stand up for a moment. Stand up. Come on, everybody stand up. And I want to split the room right here in the middle. And y'all just make make like part like the Red Sea here. Yeah. Okay, split. Some of you can go out into the aisles. We need a nice clear gap right down the center. Good. Okay, everybody. We see this gap. On the right, you're Mount Gerizim, and you represent the blessing. Woo! Those of you on the left represent Mount Ebal, and you stand for the curse. I know. So sad. I want you guys to fast forward, okay, in, in Israel's history, okay? After Israel defeated Jericho and Ai, they went to the spot, and Joshua did just as Moses commanded, Joshua 8.31. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law, Joshua 8.34. But look around. We start to get a sense of what's happening here. Remember I said it's like a, it's like a visual message, right? It's like they're acting out this sermon. They're standing on these two mountains. And when you're standing there, it forces you to sort of make a choice. You're, at, you're thinking to yourself, where do I stand? Now, if you're on the, on the curse side, you're like, I don't want to be here. I want to be on the blessing side. And if you're on the blessing side, you're thinking, I'm not moving. I'm staying put. I'm resolving to stay committed to the, to the Lord. So it invites us to ask this question, where do I stand? Not where do my parents stand? Not where does that guy over there stand? Where do I stand? Where do I stand with the Lord? Am I walking with the Lord? See, either you need to move or you need to resolve to stay faithful. So choose today, blessing or curse. You guys can grab your seats again. You have to choose. You're either going to love and serve the Lord or you're going to serve something else. But there's no middle ground. I like doing this illustration because some of you families were divided by this. You had to go different directions. And that's exactly what happens when we follow the Lord. Sometimes we have to make the decision to follow the Lord even if our family doesn't follow the Lord. Amen? Those of you who are graduating high school, I want to say congratulations. This is a milestone in your life. And this 
This is a perfect opportunity for you to recommit yourself to walking with the Lord. Our covenant commitment should be renewed at significant junctures in our lives. So think about what's happening. Right now, in the book of Deuteronomy, they're renewing the covenant on the plains of Moab. And Moses is teaching them to do the exact same thing when they get to Shechem. And Joshua is going to do it again at the end of his life. He's going to say, choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. There's these points in Israel's history where they renew the covenant. This is a great time for you to say, you know what, I'm committed to the Lord. As you launch out into life and you ask this question, who am I going to serve? Who am I going to live for? Or what am I going to live for? This is a great time for you to choose to follow the Lord, the voice of the Lord. But that same choice is, is in front of every one of us. Even if you've already committed your life to Christ, even if you've made that initial choice, right? We're all faced with the choice to follow Jesus Christ daily in every single temptation that you face. The choice is before you. Faithfully trust and obey the voice of the Lord. Give your amen, as it were. What does that mean? I want you to look at what Moses has them do as a part of this ceremony. The Levites are supposed to proclaim these curses, and after each one, Moses tells them, all the people shall say, amen. Amen's a churchy word. We say amen a lot. Have you ever stopped to think about what that means? When you say amen, you are saying, yes, so let it be. You're agreeing. By saying amen, in this context, the people are, are, are expressing that they understood and they agreed. It's like putting your signature on a contract or saying I do in a wedding. Yesterday, Nathan and Brayden got married, right? And as they were joining together in a covenant, and they made some promises to each other, and they said, I do. The amen here is like that. It's saying, I will live this certain way before God in the covenant. And they're agreeing that if not, they'll be cursed. Cursed. What does that mean? To be cursed by God. It means to be condemned, to come under his wrath and his judgment. Now, there are 12 curses listed here at the end of chapter 27, and I'm not going to expound them all in detail because they all cover sins that we've already uh, seen through the book, but I want to make a few general comments. First, this list gives us a sense of God's ethical priorities, his moral priorities. So the very first thing on the list is don't make any metal images. Idolatry is the chief sin, right? The, the main covenant duty is to be faithful to God alone. But look what comes after that. It's honoring your parents. And then it's upholding justice and protecting the weak and, and uh, sexual integrity or purity and the sanctity of human life. This list gives us a sense of God's ethical priorities. Then the common thread through these curses is, is that they all address sins that are mainly done in secret. So, for example, look at verse 17. If someone were, I mean, this is not our context, but let's suppose someone is going to sinfully move a landmark so that they could steal some property, right? Some of the fellow Israelites' inheritance. You want to do that and not get caught, right? Or, for example, verse 18. A blind man is not going to be able to identify the one who misleads him. So if you... if, if if, you, if it was robbed, he couldn't identify the thief. What's the point? The point here is that 
The Lord sees and knows what happens even in secret. Whether the sin is discovered or not, it still deserves and will bring God's curse. They might escape the civil authorities, but not God's judgment for sin. You might pull the wool over people's eyes, but you'll never pull the wool over God's eyes. Now, four of these 12 deal with sexual immorality, verses 21 through 23. And I want to stop and just mention again here, because pornography is so easily hidden and so widespread in our culture, there are likely people here who are caught up in it. And I want to exhort you again to confess, to bring that sin into light so that you can be forgiven and freed from that sin. Verse 25 says, Cursed is anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. I can't pass over this verse. Obviously, a bribe wouldn't be of any use to a paid assassin unless he thought he could kill without being caught. Otherwise, the money's no good. So again, we see the secrecy here. In the U.S., we have thousands of paid assassins. We call them abortionists. We hire them to shed the innocent blood of defenseless babies. They stand under God's curse. Now, before we sort of gloat over that fact... It's like one of those situations where you see the list and you're like, oh yeah, like I don't mislead a blind man and uh, I haven't moved my neighbor's landmark so I'm good there and I, I've never assassinated anybody. You read this list and you're like, yeah, those people, those people. But then Moses flips the script in the last curse in verse 26. He sums it up saying, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. This final curse is all-encompassing. If you break any one of God's laws, you're under the curse. We are all cursed. It's not just the other guy. It's us. It's all of us. And Paul quotes this in Galatians 3, 10 through 14. He says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. If you don't do everything that the law demands, if you don't perfectly keep the law, you're under a curse. But none of us does that. None of us perfectly obeys God's commands. We are all under the curse. We all sin. We all break God's law. We are all under his wrath. This is how the law reveals our need for Jesus Christ and his redemption. Paul says, no one is justified, that is, no one is counted righteous before God by the law. That's because we all fail to keep it. See, we need perfect righteousness, but none of us can do it. So now what? We're just stuck. No, this is why God sent Jesus Christ to earth. See, Jesus lived the perfect, sinless life. On the test of life, if you will, in obeying God, Jesus is the only one who gets an A plus on the exam. And Jesus, Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse 
for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He's talking about the cross here. So when we come to, to Jesus Christ by faith, there's this amazing exchange that happens. God takes our sin, our F grade, if you will, and he imputes it or credits it to Jesus' account and he kills him for it on the cross. Jesus dies in our place for our sin. He didn't die for his sin. He didn't have any sin. He dies for our sin. Jesus is a sin-bearing, curse-bearing substitute for us on the cross. But that's not all of it. At the same time, when we come to faith in Christ, God takes Jesus' perfect righteousness and he imputes it to us. He credits it to us so that we are declared or counted righteous before God. The word for this is justification. It's being counted righteous. This happens by faith in Jesus Christ. Or as Paul puts it, he puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, because he's perfect, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are justified by faith. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. This is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're justified by His grace as a gift through redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 22-24. This happens by faith, this great exchange. This is the heart of the good news of the gospel. This is why I titled the sermon, Christ or cursed. Because apart from Christ, we're all under the curse. We all fail to perfectly obey God. You see, Jesus succeeds where every single human being fails. The only way, the only way that we are able to stand before a holy God is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, received by faith. Now, is the only purpose of the law then to point us to Christ? Well, no. As we've said before through this book of Deuteronomy, there are three uses of the law. The law restrains sin in society, it reveals our need for Jesus, and it trains us in righteousness. For believers, the law still reveals God's will, and there's still blessing for obedience to Him. And though there's no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is still dis discipline for disobedience. Now, to help them make their choice... Moses is going to elaborate on the blessings and the curses. And he gives now the covenant sanctions. This leads us to point three. Warning. You will either have the favor of God or the futility of idols. We stand forewarned. We see this in chapter 28. Now, get your Bibles out if you don't have your Bibles out because I'm not going to put every verse of chapter 28 and I want you to have your fingers on your Bibles because I'm going to go through this chapter pretty quickly so you can follow along. You guys ready? Bibles? Fingers? Ready? Good. Okay. Overall, our text today, as I said, is a warning. You have a choice to make. Will you have the favor of God or the futility of idols? Moses is going to outline the blessings first and then he's going to go through the curses. All right, verse 1 and 2. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the blessings list is comprehensive. 
Blessed shall you be in the city and in the country, verse 3. You'll be fruitful in every way, in the fruit of your womb, your ground, and your animals, verse 4. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl, verse 5. Blessed shall you be when you come in and when you go out, in everything that you do, verse 6. Your enemies will be defeated. They'll attack you one way, and they'll flee from you in seven different ways, verse 7. God will bless you in all that you undertake, verse 8. If you walk in his ways, God will honor you, Verse 10, all the peoples of the earth shall see that you're called by the name of the Lord. So God's blessing is a testimony displaying the grace of God, spreading the knowledge of his name, bringing glory to God. It goes beyond them. They will lend and not borrow, verse 12. They will be the head and not the tail, verse 13, if they don't turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right or to the left, to go after other gods, to serve them. There it is again. It's the primary issue. Are you going to follow the Lord or are you going to go after other gods? And I will tell you, Satan doesn't care which side of the horse you fall off on, to the right or to the left. He doesn't care so long as you end up in a ditch. Do you see that? So when it comes to male leadership in the home, he doesn't care if you're a passive leader or a domineering leader. Both are sinful, wrong ways to lead in the home. He doesn't care what side you fall off in, so long as you fall in a ditch. Now, as God's people, we experience God's blessing and can enjoy relationship with him only by living faithfully his way. But I want to point out that these blessings are not a deserved reward, They still come as a demonstration of God's grace. We can't put God in our debt as if somehow we could make him owe us something. Who has ever given a gift to God that he should be repaid? Romans 11.35. No one. The blessings for your obedience are still an undeserved gift of God's grace. Let's not think too simplistically about this. Amen? Now, like the blessings, the curses are comprehensive, but they're more detailed. The curse section is four times longer, and they're the exact opposite of the blessings. Verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commands and his statutes, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city and the countryside, verse 16. Cursed shall be your basket and kneading bowl, verse 17. Cursed will be the fruit of your womb, your fields, and your animals, verse 18. Cursed when you go out and when you come in, verse 19. The Lord will confuse and frustrate all that you undertake to do, verse 20, until you are destroyed. Now we need to stop here. That phrase is repeated seven times in this chapter. Until you are destroyed disobedience, rejecting the living God and chasing after idols, it leads to destruction. It leads to affliction and misery and despair and death. That is the point Moses is driving home. And he uses all these vivid pictures. Verse 23 and 24. The heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. There'll be no rain. A drought will come and it will rain dust And the dry ground will be like hard as iron in which nothing can grow. They are going to be the ones who are defeated in battle and who flee seven ways in retreat, verse 25. Rather than honor, they'll be a horror to the kingdoms of the earth, verse 25. Their unburied bodies will be food for birds and beasts, verse 26. 
The Lord will strike them with boils, the boils of Egypt, with scabs and itch that cannot be healed. Verse 27. That's enough for me. Okay? And with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, you will grope at noonday as the blind grope in the darkness. Verse 28 and 29. You shall not prosper in your ways. Everything will be futility for them. Look at verse 30. You'll betroth the wife, but shall not have her. You'll build a house, but shall not dwell in it. You'll plant a vineyard, but shall not enjoy its fruit. You'll slaughter an ox, but shall not eat any of it. Verse 31. Your sons and daughters will be sold or taken captive to other places, and your eyes, parents, will fail with longing for them. Imagine the tears being shed over the loss of their children. It will be loss. Loss in the field from the locust, verse 38. Loss in the vineyard from worms, verse 39. Loss in the orchards from falling, verse 40. Loss of children from being taken captive, verse 41. Loss and loss and loss and loss. They will borrow and not lend. They'll be the tail and not the head, verse 44. Then Moses gives the reason. Verse 45. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you're destroyed. There it is again. Because you didn't obey the voice of the Lord your God and keep his commandments. And, verse 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of all the, the abundance of all things. You see, despite God's abundant provision, they didn't joyfully serve him. They took his blessings for granted as a given. And since they wouldn't serve the Lord, who is a powerful and gracious king, who abundantly gives them all these things, since they wouldn't serve him, they would serve a hard-faced and harsh master, verse 50. They'll serve their enemies, who will put a yoke of iron on their neck, verse 48. A nation will swoop down like the eagle. This is a picture of being snatched up, torn apart, and devoured without mercy. They're fearsome. I watched a video recently where an eagle was eating its prey while it was alive, tearing its flesh apart. That's the enemies that are going to come. But it gets worse. They're going to be besieged by these enemies until they're so starved and desperate that even the most refined and tender-hearted among them will resort to cannibalism. Moses describes this in horrid detail in verses 52 to 57. They're going to suffer extraordinary afflictions, verse 59. Their life will hang in doubt by a thread, verse 66. Imagine being suspended over a cliff by a slender, fraying rope, any moment ready to snap and send you to your doom. That's the picture. And as we read this, this section of the curses, we realize that these curses are a reversal a reversal of the blessings uh, of Abraham and of the Exodus. History is being inverted. Rather than the Abrahamic blessing of a people as numerous as the stars in the promised land, they'll be left few in number, verse 62, plucked off the land, verse 63, and scattered over the earth, verse 64. Rather than the Exodus blessing of deliverance from their enemies, they'll suffer the plagues that were laid on the Egyptians, verse 60, and be taken back into captivity, verse 68. Twice he tells them that part of the curse is that you'll go into these foreign nations and you'll serve other gods. When they go after other gods, one of the curses is that God will let them have what they want. 
Understand, idolatry itself is a punishment because those gods cannot save or strengthen or satisfy you. They are all empty. You see, at first, these other things in the world, these idols that we chase after, they look appealing. But in the end, we find out they're worthless. They're empty. Look at verse 65. It says, They will find no respite, no resting place. The Lord will give them a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. That's what we find apart from God by chasing the things of this world. We will either have the favor of God or the futility of idols. Now, it took time to go through that, but we needed to go through those curses in some detail in order to feel the total and terrifying consequences of rejecting God. Moses drives home in vivid and stark detail the absolute futility and misery and destruction that results from going after other gods. What's the point? What's the application for us in this? First, there's an apologetic function. The blessings sound amazing, right? You read the blessings and you're like, this is awesome. But you're left thinking like, who wouldn't choose this? Like, who wouldn't obey the Lord and get these blessings? Why would anybody go after other gods? Because they believe in a lie. They believe that those false gods are the path to blessing rather than faithfulness to God. That's been the lie since the garden, and we'll be fighting that lie until glory. The lie that you're going to find your joy and your satisfaction and your significance, your good, not in Christ, but in the idols of this world. Satan continually whispers that we're missing out. And if we just had this or that, then we'd be satisfied. It's when we believe, truly believe and trust that our highest joy and our greatest good is in Christ that we stop going after idols and the things of this world. At the end of the day, all of us as human beings are worshipers. God made us to worship. So it's not whether but which. It's not whether we will serve a God. It's which God will we serve. What's it going to be? The one living in true God or some other false God? And the Bible here exposes in vivid detail the ends of each. The tendency of humans is to idolatry. Calvin had it right when he said that the human heart is like an idol factory. We just keep making more idols. We seek solutions everywhere but in the living God. We look for our joy and satisfaction and significance and strength and comfort and security in the things of this world. But idols never deliver. They never deliver. They never give what they promise. They promise peace, but they give you turmoil. They promise joy, but they bring you misery. They promise life, but they bring you death. If Israel thought that they could find the blessings through idols, they were sorely mistaken. And so are we. So what idols have you been chasing after? Achievement, popularity, success, pleasure, a certain look. Where have you been looking for your security, for your significance, for your satisfaction? How do you fight idols if your heart just keeps manufacturing more 
How do you fight that? It's not by trying to simply reject your idols. That's not enough. You've got to replace it with a superior worship. With the worship of the one true and living God and His Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. That is the path to victory over idolatry in your life. It's faithfulness to God. You find all those things in Christ alone. This is why David can say in the Psalms, Lord, you put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Or as Asaph says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you know some of the truth of this? Do you know the truth of this, believer? Do you know this to be true? Worshiping false gods leads down a dead-end alley. It's dark and often dangerous, and it's full of trash, and it stinks. There's no joy or contentment there. So you will either have the favor of God or the futility of idols. Second, this is a warning. In this passage, God warns the people of the consequences of rejecting him. In effect, he's saying, think carefully about what's going to happen if you reject the living God and go after false gods, if you choose rebellion rather than faithfulness. Think about that. Now, I want to say that the purpose of warnings in the Bible is actually positive. It's to motivate the perseverance of the saints, perseverance in the faith. God's warning are his grace to us. So like Jesus' warning that fruitless branches will burn, or Paul's warning to the Colossians that they've been reconciled to God provided they continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. The purpose of the warning passages is, is to encourage, to motivate the perseverance of the saints. They guard us against presumption so that we don't take our standing with God for granted, so that we don't presume on His grace, thinking, you know what, I prayed a prayer, I made a decision once, now I can go and live however I want. The warnings are here to tell us, unless you persevere in faith to the end, you will not be saved. You are not in the faith in Christ. Do You see, this is, this is a grace to us. It's a reminder for us that there is no security, no assurance of salvation for those who live in sin, in persistent, unrepentant sin. No matter what you say, no matter what you confess, I don't care if you tell me that you're a believer all day long. If you're walking in persistent, unrepentant sin, I have to question. And so should you. The warning here is to check yourself. And for those of us who are walking with the Lord, it's an encouragement to continue to persevere in the faith. Yes, yes, we have the promise of God that He is going to complete the work that He began in us. Amen? By God's grace, all true believers will persevere to the end. Amen? But... That's not the point of warnings in the Bible. See, the warnings in the Bible emphasize the other side of the coin. Our need to remain faithful. Do you see? God in His grace has given them a glimpse of where the story is headed, where it ends. He's given us a warning. He's made known to you the path of life. What's left for you is to walk in it. To choose to faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, not just once, but daily. 
If you're going after other gods, turn back to the Lord. If you're striving to follow Christ, then make today a day that you renew your commitment to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for sending Jesus Christ to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We thank you for this gift of salvation by faith in Christ. And we thank you for the gift of of grace to persevere in the faith. And Lord, we just ask and pray that you would help us to put to death any idols in our lives and to serve you and you alone faithfully and joyfully. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.